Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. The New York State 2023 legislative session has officially begun, and lawmakers are expected to tackle issues ranging from affordable housing to improving public safety. More from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. The first day of the session was devoted mostly to ceremonial actions, with lawmakers electing new leaders, pledging bipartisanship, and putting off their differences until later in the month. A special shout-out to my outstanding supermajority. That would be you. Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins was re-elected for another term and begins her fifth year as the first woman and African-American woman to lead the Senate. Stewart-Cousins says she wants to focus on affordable housing. She says New York needs a new transformative housing policy as the cost of living continues to surpass average income. We see it most acutely in the current housing shortage that's devastating New Yorkers across the state, leaving many to wonder if they'll be able to make rent, let alone buy a house. The current market is failing to provide adequate supply. New York's crime rate became an issue in the 2022 election campaign, and leader Stuart Cousins and other Democrats came under pressure to rescind the 2019 bail reform laws. They ended most forms of cash bail. Stuart Cousins says solving the crime problem is more complicated than that. And we understand that perception is powerful. But we have to remember that crime will not be solved with a single solution. Public safety and justice can go hand in hand. Republican minority Senate leader Robert Ort was also reelected. He jokingly contrasted the voting for his position to the troubles House Republicans in Washington are having deciding on their new leader. See, Republicans can elect a leader. On the first ballot. So. Or it continued to draw a contrast with the political gridlock in Washington, saying he wants to work together with Democrats. He says the people who elected him and the other senators are depending on them to work together in a serious manner. That does not mean that we simply are here to oppose anything that comes out of the majority. We are here to do the job that we were elected to do by our constituents. Ort, who represents the Buffalo area, says during the Christmas blizzard that killed at least 42, people did not care if their local or state officials were Democrats or Republicans. They just wanted government to function and to help them. Ort also offered a moment of silence on the Senate floor for Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin, who was critically injured in Monday night's game. In the Assembly, Speaker Carl Hasty won't be giving his opening remarks until Monday. So welcome and thank you all. Hasty, who is from the Bronx, said in late December that he will also prioritize finding solutions to the housing affordability crisis in 2023. We want to make sure that people can afford to live and, and work, not only in the city, but throughout the state. Assembly Democrats are also deciding whether to allow newly elected Republican Assemblyman Lester Chang to keep his seat. Questions have been raised about whether Chang has met the eligibility requirements for living in the Brooklyn district that he now represents. Democrats will make their decision next week. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartok spoke this week with Corinne Carey, Senior Campaign Director for Compassion and Choices, a group that has been lobbying for eight years to pass aid and dying legislation in New York. Alan begins by asking Corinne, what's in the legislation? Medical aid in dying is a time-tested process whereby a terminally ill, mentally capable adult can ask their physician for a prescription for medication that they can take at a time of their choosing or never should their suffering become too great to bear. There are a dozen safeguards attached to legislation. Too many many safeguards? Well, in some ways, there are states that are looking at those safeguards to see if they are acting more as barriers than safeguards, and we can talk about some of those. Let's talk about them right now. What are some of the safeguards? Well, one one of the safeguards uh, that New York doesn't have, but every other state has, is a residency requirement. So people can't go to different states. There was a fear early on that places would become destinations for medical aid. So where are some of the great destinations uh, for this process? Well, you know, there aren't, Alan, because once someone has a six-month prognosis, it's exceedingly difficult to actually pick up and move and establish a new care team and undergo the evaluations, get a second physician, and then in some places uh, deal with a waiting period. So there are no destination states for medical aid and dying, but there are 11 jurisdictions in this country that allow it. And our neighbors in Vermont and New Jersey are just two of those states. Well, I have to say that my mother, long gone, used to walk around with a little one of those little medical vials, you know, that you get pills in. And she would shake it and she would say, this is my nursing home. Mm-hmm. But of course, she didn't believe it. She didn't do it. She ended up in a nursing home because sometimes when you, by the time you get to the nursing home, you've forgotten what you were going to do. Well, that's but, true. But she certainly did believe in people's rights to end their lives and to change their conditions. Are you watching the polling on this? Oh, absolutely. The polling has consistently shown that across every imaginable demographic and group New York voters support this. The latest polling that was done was done by Marist in 2021, Mm -hmm. October of 2021. 59% of New Yorkers believe that terminally ill adults should have this right. 36% did not in that particular poll. But we've seen national polling year after year after year, and the numbers are growing. I think, you know, the COVID pandemic has a little bit to do with that. I think we've seen uh, what a bad death truly looks like, uh, a death where you're disconnected from family, uh, the people that you love, you are suffering, um, you're afraid. Now, people have seen that up close in their own lives, but they've seen it on television and in the news. And I think it really highlights what a good death could be. And we see that people in New York are increasingly um, watching loved ones, relatives, friends take advantage of these laws in other states. And their families have stories that are of deaths that are not only gentle, but also beautiful. Do you really mean good death or do you mean better death? Mm, Well, I guess there's no such thing as a good death uh, because we miss people. Um, You know, there's a fear of the unknown, but certainly people can have a much better death. They can choreograph the end, the last chapter of their lives. We're talking to Corrine Carey, and our question of the day is compassion and choices in the aid in dying movement. How did you get it done in New Jersey? We had a number of 
really compelling storytellers there. Uh, we met with every single lawmaker. Now, you know, it took seven years of a mm. campaign. And so we're we're on year eight in New York. And I don't think that that's unusual for a piece of legislation that people deem controversial. But I'll tell you, Alan, I think lawmakers in New York, maybe New Yorkers in general, are more skeptical than lawmakers in other states. So, for example, we'd go into a legislative meeting in New Jersey and the lawmaker would ask us a question we would answer it, and they would say, great, I'm on board. That doesn't happen here in New York. You but, answer a question, and they've got another one, and another one, and another one. But there's always this issue of throwing grandma from the train. In other words, you make it too easy. Some people, skeptical people, would say you're trying to make it easy to kill people. Well, I think that that is a fear <laughs> among some lawmakers, but I'll, I'll tell you this. The bill itself is designed to put the dying person and the dying person alone in charge of this process. The initial request has to be made by the dying person, and at the end, the dying person has to be the one to self-ingest the medication. No one can request this for you, not a guardian, not a health proxy, not a doctor. So that is something that I think people are concerned about, but then when they learn what the bill actually does, um, those fears tend to dissipate. I'll also say that elder abuse, you know, is a horrible thing that we are that we deal with in this state and everywhere in the country. But elder abuse happens now. There are family members that refuse to take a loved one to the doctor that over-medicate, that under-medicate, and that do all kinds of other pernicious things outside of the realm of medical aid and dying. So mm -hmm. it, it isn't medical aid and dying that provides a pathway to abuse. That abuse is happening and needs to be addressed now. Medical aid and dying is a structure, and no one would go into that structure with all of the safeguards and all of the protections just to do what they could do without it. So who are the people who really stand in your way from getting this done or the organizations? Is the Catholic Church, for example, on board? No, the Catholic Church is not on board. The Catholic Church has never been on board with any of these bills across the country, and they never will be. Um, this is, I, I think, a seminal issue for the New York State Catholic Conference. But I think even they recognize that it isn't going to be religious arguments that sway lawmakers to not take up and pass this bill. I think part of the issue here is that it's easier to do nothing than it is to do something. And frankly, this bill isn't a priority for anyone until it is, mm -hmm. until you or a loved one are facing down certain death with the only thing in the future being suffering. So why do we need legislation? Why don't I just jump off the, if, if I want to do it, jump off the bridge? Because suicide is terrible and has an incredibly awful effect on families. Research is showing that those effects are now intergenerational. Um, decades from a suicide, it has a tremendous Tremendously you know, negative following impact. following along, right, doing the well, same thing? Well, not so much, just that it creates a tension in families that doesn't go away. Um, the impact on the community, on the EMS providers that may find someone. You know, we are very much in favor of suicide prevention efforts. And it may seem paradoxical, but medical aid in dying is actually a suicide prevention measure. During my eight years of running this campaign, I have heard 
far too many stories of people taking their own lives. A 9-11 first responder who uh, contracted cancer shot himself in the head at the entrance of a public park on Long Island. No EMS provider should have to deal with that. No family member, no friend should have to deal with that. He should have had the option to ask his doctor for medical aid in dying. But the worst stories I hear, Alan, are the people who try to take their own lives and are unsuccessful. And they end up on life support Mm. or they end up in a worse situation. And you may think with this raging opioid epidemic that we have that it's quite easy to take your life, but it's not. Because? Because when you're on pain medication in high doses for a a very long period of time, trying to overdose on pain medications is almost impossible. Um, That's why it's really important that physicians are involved to take account of your body weight, your illness, what medications you've been on, and devise the right amount of medication that's going to bring about a peaceful death. That's Corinne Carey, Senior Campaign Director for Compassion and Choices. She spoke with Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Shartok. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The Siena College Research Institute is out with its quarterly index of consumer sentiment for New York state. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. The New York state index of consumer sentiment is up 1.5 points from the third quarter of 2022 to 72.3, according to the latest poll. Director Don Levy says the state's overall index of consumer sentiment is 12.6 points above the nation's index of 59.7. Overall sentiment is relatively steady, up about a point to three points on every single index. Noteworthy, the index here in the state of New York continues to outpace the national level of consumer sentiment by a significant margin, almost 13 points. New York's number is driven most especially by our friends in New York City. They have an overall index of 76.6. That's right at the break-even point where optimism and pessimism are balanced. Here upstate, our index is about 10 points lower than it is in New York City at about 66. Still, 66 is an improvement from where it was last quarter. Consumer sentiment is up across upstate by about six points. Levy says overall confidence is also higher in New York than nationally. He notes that in the fourth quarter of 2022, buying plans for motor vehicles went up. We can see that um, in terms of consumer demand uh, continues to be high. Intent to purchase major consumer items remains strong, although down for uh, several uh, home improvements, electronics, furniture down just a little bit. Noteworthy, we see that the intent that people have to buy cars and trucks is up. In fact, at the highest rate we've seen for several years, 
Nearly one out of four New Yorkers say that they intend to purchase a vehicle over the next six months. But Sienna finds inflation, food prices, and political uncertainty may be contributing to New York's current consumer sentiment coming in 20 points lower than before the pandemic. Levy says two-thirds of New Yorkers report current gas prices are continuing to have a serious impact on their finances. The impact that gas and food prices are having, 66% of us say that the gas prices are having a, an effect on our budget that's down three points from last quarter, but still uh, continues to be high despite the fact that gas prices have dropped. The one that continues to really bite the pocketbook is uh, the cost of groceries. 79% of us, nearly 8 out of 10 New Yorkers, say that the cost at the grocery store is having a, a serious impact on their family budget. That's up just a point from where it was last quarter. So we're entering into a, a prolonged period where nearly 8 out of 10 of us say that food prices are seriously affecting their budget. Amanda Powers with the Retail Council of New York State says the Siena poll is right on target. Inflation, the word on everyone's lips right now, higher gas prices, higher grocery prices, those are still affecting shoppers for sure. Inflation in particular explains why the optimism level is quite a bit lower than it was pre-pandemic. But, you know, all those factors considered, Shoppers are still spending. In fact, the holiday spending was a bit higher than expected and, and in line with growth over previous years. We think at the Retail Council the most encouraging part of the survey is the optimism for the future, which New York is a solid 16 points higher than the national average at 76%. So we're very encouraged by that. Levy says a breakdown of survey data by demographic groups offered a few surprises. Over this quarter, we saw the overall sentiment of uh, Republicans across the state of New York increased by uh, nearly eight points of any of the demographic groups that we track. That was the group that had the single largest increase, perhaps a little bit of enthusiasm over uh, taking control of the House of Representatives. Of course, the poll was taken before the turmoil in terms of picking a speaker. Still, what was a uh, significant gap between Democrats and Republicans in terms of their consumer sentiment. Democrats continue to have a, a sentiment that is the highest of any demo, uh, demographic group that we look at at 87, above the, the break-even point. Republicans were just a hair under 50 last quarter, and, and that uh, increase of nearly eight points has brought them to 57, uh, closing the gap with their Democratic friends. The poll was conducted in mid-December. There's more at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, school-based health has played a key role in making sure all kids get care. At school-based health centers, children can get checkups, shots, and basic health care all inside the school building. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, WSKG's Phoebe Taylor-Buolo has more. Chelsea Doig is a physician's assistant at Delaware Academy, a K-12 school in the village of Delhi in Delaware County. She sees anywhere from 5 to 20 kids a day at the school's health clinic. Students go there when they're sick and for routine checkups, immunizations, even dental care. Lately, Doig's been busier than usual, dealing with RSV, COVID, and the flu. This is definitely an area that's lacking care, so it's definitely a rewarding um, position. And the kids feel safe coming here. You know, they know they can come here. Um, and that's kind of been a really nice thing to see, too. 
It's been 30 years since school-based health first came to Delaware County. And when COVID first hit in 2020, New York schools shut down, but many of the small doctor's offices inside of them didn't. Here's Jane Hamilton, school-based health practice manager for Bassett. Bassett's is the largest school-based health network in rural New York. Kids still needed their immunizations. They still needed their physicals. They still were grappling even more so with things with anxiety, depression, obesity, ADHD. All those things didn't go away because COVID came around. Some parents were more comfortable bringing their kids to a place they were familiar with. Many were afraid to take their children to regular doctor's offices, or their providers were simply too busy to fit them in. Kelly Zimmerman is the superintendent of Delaware Academy. She says school-based health helps make doctor's appointments less disruptive for kids. It's a game changer, especially in rural communities, where oftentimes there might be just one provider, you know, in a community that a parent has to take hours off work for, a child misses half day or full day of school for one appointment, can't always guarantee that they're on time. Again, all of that is mitigated. Zimmerman says kids are more comfortable in the school's doctor's office. They know the staff, they can head back to class afterwards, and there's no copay. In Vestal, I'm Phoebe Taylor Vuolo. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. After five years of preparation, the World University Games are set to begin next week in Lake Placid. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. In 2018, Lake Placid was chosen by the Switzerland-based International University Sports Federation to host the 2023 World University Games. The Games are the largest winter collegiate competition in the world, with about 2,500 student-athletes between 17 and 25 competing in sports like skiing, speed skating, figure skating, and hockey during the 11-day event. Lake Placid Acid Mayor Art Devlin says the village and region will be ready. The sports venues are ready. They're state-of-the-art, probably amongst the best in the world right now. The harder part is all the details that have to go into holding a world-class event. Everything is falling together, but it's just nerve-wracking. A lot of people putting in a lot of hard hours to make sure we comply with the standards and the protocols and all the things we didn't think of. So that's going to happen right up until the start of the games and probably right through the games. The Adirondack Sports Council is coordinating local World University Games efforts. Chair Jim McKenna says they are ready and waiting for seasonal winter weather. The only thing that we haven't been able to wrap our hands around at this point is good fresh snow. Uh, (laughs) But overall... The organization aspect of the games are in good shape at this point. Clearly, the sports venues are are up and running, even with the weather we've had. They have the capacity now to make snow, which they've done plenty in advance. International delegations have been starting to arrive. So we're starting to see that international flavor on the main street here in Lake Placid. McKenna says the World University Games include a three-day educational forum beginning on January 13th 
featuring speakers like New York Department of Environmental Conservation Commissioner Basil Sagos, author Bill McKibben, and Earth Day Network President Kathleen Rogers exploring the impact of climate change on winter sports. It's about Save Winter, and we have some uh, national leaders, some international speakers addressing that issue because we want to use this as a launch pad to really focus in on how important winter is for destinations not only like the Adirondacks but many destinations around the world and how we all have to work together to solve that problem in order to save winter. A lot of great speakers uh, throughout our three-day conference. I mean, that's what makes this event a little different than strictly sports events. There's a little mixture of education in with it as well. New York invested millions of dollars to upgrade the Olympic sporting venues in Lake Placid. Mayor Devlin says it brings the region back up to state-of-the-art facilities able to host large winter sporting competitions. Three, four years ago, we were starting to lose people training here and using our facilities because they no longer met the FIS standards and the international standards. And now everything we have complies. and We're starting to attract people back. We hope to attract even more. Uh, I see Lake Placid is going nowhere but up. The Fishu Games is big. It is big recognition. It's a real feather in our cap, as my father would say, for Lake Placid to be able to host such an event. This is big. This is the third time the World University Games have been held in the U.S. In 1972, Lake Placid hosted the Winter Games, and Buffalo hosted the 1993 Summer Games. Lake Placid is also the site of the 1932 and 1980 Winter Olympics. The World University Games run January 12th to the 22nd. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. Copies are available by calling 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2301. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.